This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, September 13th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. What rules must we adopt for a functioning and free society? Peter J. Betke is a professor of economics at George Mason University and deputy director of the James M. Buchanan Center for Political Economy. He recently discussed many of the aspects of political economy at Cato University on Capitol Hill. I guess you guys probably have talked about the Founding Fathers some here, right? And if you think about what it is that the Founding Fathers are doing with the fundamental puzzles, there's two fundamental puzzles in the Federalist Papers. The first one is Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Number 1. And he says to the audience, right, in the, to the Independent uh, Journal, right, he says to the audience, he says, look, it's our generation that has to answer the question, are a people forever held for their constitutions based on reflection and choice? or accident and force. It's up to us to prove that you can have a constitution based on reflection and choice. So that's the first puzzle, all right? So can we, in fact, have those things, or do we just have to have whatever evolved, evolved, and we got to live with it? The second puzzle is Madison, and where Madison comes in, he says, look, here's the fundamental paradox of governance. We have to, in, uh, we have to recognize that if men were angels— there would be no need for government. And if government were to be run by angels, there would be no need for restraints on government, on the power of government, checks and balances, whatever you want to call it. So what does Madison say? The paradox of forming a government is to first empower the government and then constrain it. All right? So the founding fathers understood that what you wanted to have was a robust system because you couldn't assume that the population was full of angels, or that the only people in power were saints. Instead, we are who we are, sometimes bad, sometimes good, sometimes smart, more often stupid. So what you have to do is not design a system of government so that only the best and the brightest can rule or demand men to be better because of it, but instead take men in their given variety as they are, I mean men here in the generic, you know, sense, so no one gets, you know, I don't want any language issues, all right? Um, And, uh, you know, take men in their given variety, in their imperfections, and have rules of governance for that world, okay? Now, the French Enlightenment, which is different from the Scottish Enlightenment or the British Enlightenment, the French Enlightenment, they believed, for example, that you should have government for the best and the brightest, Well, fast forward 100 years, that's what the progressives were about. Train a ruling elite. Put them in the finest schools and teach them so that economic policy is a version of social engineering. If it's social engineering, right, then what you need is competent engineers to control things. Someone has to be in charge rather than allowing the game to play, the free forces of the game to play governed by rules. So, credibility, uh, rules, credibility, and robustness. Let's walk through this. So, these are the two crucial books or key books in the idea. You know, when Kurt took this class, we started out by reading Milton Friedman's Free to Ch- uh, Capitalism and Freedom and then Free to Choose. All right, Milton Friedman is, is probably, since in the post-World War II period, the most important sort of free market intellectual figure. He wrote two major books sort of summarizing to a large extent a lot of the ideas that are 
bubbling out of Cato and other organizations, you know, find a lot of their inspiration in Milton Friedman. And he wrote a book called Capitalism and Freedom, which he was based on a series of lectures in the 50s, and it was published in the early 60s. All right? And that book didn't actually do all that well, sales-wise. Um, it has subsequently, but at the time, you know, and, and as Friedman pointed out, it wasn't reviewed in any of the major periodicals, blah, blah, blah. When he published Free to Choose in 1980, that thing took off like a bat out of hell. It was a PBS series. It was a huge hit. It was, in that day, what you would call viral, right? And the, like, you guys, so it was like a YouTube, and it just took off. Everyone was doing it. So rather than, like, a baby dancing or whatever, it was Milton Friedman talking about Free to Choose. And the exercise that I asked Kurt and his classmates to sort of engage in was what happened to the argument between 1962 and 1980? How did Friedman adjust his argument? And one of the big things that's a difference in that book, it's not the, the sole one, but one of the big issues in that was his co continuing recognition of the importance that politics has to be endogenous to social change. Before, when in 1962, he viewed kind of, he bought a lot of the progressive agenda, which was, but he just wanted to communicate better economics to the elite. So you have elite in power, let's tell them what's the right economics, and then they'll do the right thing. All right? So once they're empowered with the right economics, they'll do the right thing, so i got to teach them the right economics. By the time we get to free to choose, he's talking about, even if you knew the right economics, it might not be in your incentive to do the right thing because that's not how you win election, that's not, you know, that. What happened was he learned public choice. He learned public choice economics. Public choice economics is the grandfather, right, of constitutional economics. So the basic point of constitutional economics is in the Constitution of Liberty, 1960 by Hayek, and then the Calculus of Consent, these are the two major works in this area, uh, by James Buchanan and Gordon Tulloch. Um, and the basic point that they try to get across is that a free society is a society bound by general rules. All right? Private property, freedom of contract, bound inside of a rule of law. There are no free societies not bound by general rules. Therefore, justice, by the way, in this rendition, is about fairness. It's not about outcomes. I have two boys. Matthew and Stephen. When they were little, they're three years apart. Uh, when, they were, when they were little kids, they would go out hollow, on Halloween trick-or-treating. We lived in Manhattan at the time. In Manhattan, we lived in the NYU apartments. So the way you trick-or-treat in Manhattan, which is different from anyone here from a city, right? So what you do in Manhattan, it's awesome because they just go up and down the the elevator, right? There's four buildings in the apartment complex that I was in, and so, and they had, you know, 20 floors, right? And so they would go up and then down and up, right down, and they, you know, they, they had, they made a mint. I mean, they, they came back, and they could always stop off at our apartment and dump the thing off. Plus, there's no w weather conditions, because you're inside the whole time, right? So this is like, you know, it's heaven for a kid, you know, uh, doing this stuff. So they would come back, and they'd have this big old, you know, like bunch of candy, right? But let's say that they, what they really wanted was a snicker bar. They don't want one of those, like, you know, Smarties. You know, you get back and you get a Smartie. You know, Kurt and I are brothers, and Kurt has a Smartie, and I have a snicker bar. I'm like, ha, 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 like that. So as egalitarian parents, right, I might, you know, sit there and look at my little one, Stephen, who's crying because he's stuck with the Smartie, 
and then Matt, who's got the big old, you know, uh, snicker bar, and I say, okay, uh, Matt, give some of that snicker bar to your brother. And you guys would all, a lot of you would say, yeah, that makes intuitive sense, right? It's like unfair to, you know, the whatever. But what would be the problem if I just said that to, you know, him about fair division? And I said, Matt, give Steven some of that snicker bar. Well, Matt, who's like a greedy little kid, like all kids are, right? What he's going to do is he's going to cut off like this much of the little bar to, you know, his brother and say, here, and then run away with the big old part of the bar, right? So Stephen gets this much. So, you know, he's like that. So in order to fix that, I, as the great egalitarian, might say the following thing. Hey, Matthew, you, you know, cut the snicker bar up. Stephen, you pick which part you want. At that point, what Matthew's going to do is he's going to be like a mathematician. That snicker bar will not have one centimeter more on one side than the other side right? Because he knows that. So a lot of people now walk down. A lot of people think that's what income distribution is in a society. Let's get rules of fair division. All right? So there's a pie that's fixed. And isn't it a shame that some people get, you know, the smarties and other people get the snicker bar? And we have to somehow fix this. It's called ill-gotten gains. Somehow those snicker bars are ill-gotten gains and those ones with the smarties, you know, that's some bad. So now what we're going to do is we're going to impose some rules. And we're going to engage in, you know, fair distribution. But to Adam Smith and F.A. Hayek and Jim Buchanan, that's not what fairness is. Fairness isn't the dividing up of the candy bar because the pie isn't fixed. The pie emerges in the process of the baking of the pie. And the rules of division are going to determine the incentives for the people who go into baking the pie. So fairness is not end states. Fairness is about the rules. The rules have to be fair so that the acquisition, right, of the, of the gains are going to be judged as fair. If the rules are unfair, right, then the acquisition is unfair. But if the rules are fair, then we're going to be okay and we just have to live with it. All right. So justice is about fairness. It's much more analogous to a race. Again, thinking again in the, in the sports analogy of the game and the players in the game. If I have a race and I line up the, the, uh, the runners at the, at the start line and no one's able to start before the other guy and they all know there's, there's a line there and here's a starting line here and no one can cheat and I, and I start the race and they run, someone's going to come in first, someone's going to come in last. I don't then chop off the leg of the guy who came in first and say, you have to now hop so that the other guy can, you know, come in at the same time with you. And I have to hop exactly optimally so that everyone ends up at the same time. And think about that as a spectator of that game. You wouldn't really enjoy it. You enjoy watching, uh, you know, bolt, literally bolt, right? Right? You're like, whoa, that's exciting. It only lasted for, you know, like that. But man, that was cool. And then when someone beats him, you're like, whoop, how the hell did that happen? Right? That's pretty damn cool. Now he's back training, so now they're going to do that, and they're going to end up by excelling even more. Right? Justice is fairness. Political economy engages in both a pre- and post-constitutional levels of analysis. The pre-constitutional level of analysis is about what are good rules. The post-constitutional level analysis is, given those rules, how are players going to play the game? What are the incentives that players have? Here's the trick. You can't answer the first question 
unless you understand, right, the answer to the second question. Peter J. Betke is a professor of economics at George Mason University and deputy director of the James M. Buchanan Center for Political Economy. You can read more on what rules make for a free society at Cato.org.